Turn your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. We're in a series, Strength for Today, Hope for Tomorrow, from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, and this is the Word of God. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sear against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had given power to harm, been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, let's pray. Father, we're so glad that this is your word, that it's true and that it's certain, and that we have it before us this morning. So we ask, Father, for your spirit's help to, uh, to apply the truth here. We would pray to the way we think and live. Father, also, uh, we do want to pray for our president uh, Father, for bring healing to him in his sickness, we would pray and guide him as he leads our nation. So, Father, now guide us by your word, we pray, and your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. The prophet Zephaniah's announcement is stunning. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish. They have ruin and devastation, they have darkness and gloom, they have clouds and thick darkness, they have trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind in the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of the inhabitants of the earth, because they have sinned against the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now what's a believer caught up in such judgment supposed to do? Zephaniah's immediate answer is direct. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Uh, So he says seek righteousness. A right relationship with God. Humble yourself before God. And you may or you may not die in the judgment. What Zephaniah ultimately anticipates is the same judgment of God on the earth that takes place when Jesus opens the six seals in Revelation 6. The question is, what happens to God's people on earth during that period? We saw last week that some will die for the faith. They'll be martyred. But what about the other godly people? Uh, As the unbelievers who are about to experience the wrath of God put it, who can stand? Now, as we took the Lord's Supper last week, we gave a very short answer. 
Those who have repented of their sins and, and believe the gospel one day stand before God. Again, that's those that Zephaniah mentioned, those who seek righteousness and humble themselves before God. But chapter 7 is going to answer that question more fully. We're going to look at it over the next two weeks as we look at these two visions of what happens to the church, what happens to the people of God, as God brings judgment uh, in a world that has rejected him. So chapter 7 is incredible in its scope, and it's not without controversy in its content. Let me say content-wise, the controversy is an intramural debate. It's a debate within the church between earnest people who are equally committed uh, to Christ and to his word. And so this chapter raises questions, which we'll try to answer, believing the answers are quite really encouraging. If at the end your answers still differ from mine, just be sure your answer includes the visible bodily return of Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, again, it's a family debate, uh, but all of us want to know uh, how we're standing. And so this chapter helps us understand the question. Who can stand during the time between Christ's ascension and his returning? Uh, now we already know if we die with the Lord in their time and people have, we'll be with the Lord. But how do we live? How do we stand? Let's go to the text and see. And our approach is going to be to ask the simple five W questions. All right? Who, what, when, where, and why? And start with the H question, how? All right? How does chapter 7 fit in to Revelation? Now, it is an interruption. We can all agree with that. Why do we say that? Well, there are seven seals, we saw, and Revelation 6 opens six seals. Now, if you look over to chapter 8, verse 1, it says, When the Lord opened the seventh seal. So everything that happens in between in chapter 7 is an interruption. Uh, And by the way, we'll see that interruption take place again in the next cycle in Revelation between the sixth and seventh trumpets. Now, verse 1 as well as verse 9 begins with the words, after this. And here's one place where people differ. Some think that in, in Revelation, John's given a straight chronology of events all the way through. That what happens in chapters 2 and 3 takes place, then chapter 4 takes place, then 5, then chapter 6, 7, and so on. Uh, it takes place. Uh, others believe that John's describing things in the order of the chronology of which he receives the visions. He's not laying out a consecutive chronology of events, uh, per se, uh, but rather the order of the visions he receives. Chapter 7 has two visions in it. We'll look at the first one this week. We'll look at the second one next week before we open the seventh seal. Either way, these visions serve as an interruption between seals 6 and 7. It's some sort of a timeout, if you will. And some suspect, I guess that the reason is that sort of to understand there is a delay between seals 6 and 7. There is a delay between God's judgment, and we expect the end to come, but it doesn't. There's a delay. And so we've lived in a delay for some 2,000 years. Uh, and so, uh, now, do I, I do take, you're going to guess, the second approach, that John's given us this chronology of the visions. That would mean this. What we see happening in chapter 7 
is happening simultaneously with what we saw in chapter 6, chapter 5 and 6, which is at the same time as the letters cover the history in chapters 2 and 3. And so what we get now is another perspective of what's going to happen to God's people. How God's going to enable His people on earth to deal with the judgment that's going on. Uh, And it's about to happen with the ominous flow of of human history that we saw in chapter 6. Now why do we say that? Well, if you look at verse 3, clearly what was called for in the previous chapter has not happened yet. He says, to the, he says, hold, hold the angels, hold back the wind. Uh, do not harm the sea of the earth. He says, until these servants have been sealed. All right? Again, chapter 7 is simultaneously going on with chapter 6. So logically, why, why the holding back? Let's see what it says. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sear against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. All right, some jump on this, the four corners of the earth and say, See, he doesn't know what he's talking about. The earth doesn't have four corners. Well, that's, that's silly. Uh, as Bill says, that's a number to describe a, a cosmic completeness. Um, we don't see four corners and four winds, by the way, used again in Revelation. And certainly the four winds comes to us. If you go back and study out Zechariah 6, you'll find them there. And so what he's saying is simply a metaphorical device to show the totality of judgment that God will send on a rebellious world. And what this confirms for us is this. God is on the throne, and He's controlling the universe, and He's using His angels to do that. They act at His authority. They act at His command. Thus, the first four seals unleashed on the earth take place only because of the sovereign God. All conquering, all violence... All economic chaos, all famine, all pestilence are in God's sovereign hands to accomplish His purposes. But in such a way that it in no way excuses sinful human beings for their sinful actions. And obviously as we read this, God's restraining evil. God in His mercy restrains the impact of sin on our world. Uh, No human beings are as sinful and rebellious as we could be because God in His common grace is always restraining sin, its impact. If God removed the impact, uh, rather that restraint, the world would fall into complete anarchy and confusion. I'll give you a quick example. This past week, two families were at Disney World's Fantasyland to get into Mickey's Philhar Magic, if you saw that. Uh, one member of the family that was in the front went back to retrieve a phone she had left in a, in a vehicle. And when she came back, the family behind did not want to let her get back with her family. There were some words exchanged, everything, a light shove. Well, then they all enjoyed Mickey's Philhar Magic uh, presentation. They came out, and the first family was waiting for the second family. 
And they said, we don't like the way you treated um, this, this one woman. Well, this read the dad. Pretty soon the words turned to blows. And there was a full-fledged brawl right in the middle of Fantasyland between Peter Pan's flight and Cinderella's castle. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that ended up, it went on for like three or four minutes. They, people were hospitalized. A man was hospitalized. Um, uh, that's just a minor taste of what happens even in a magic kingdom if you re- remove the restraint uh, for a moment. Think of the road rage in our culture. Think of the violence over the last two years. The only reason we do not have more Stalins and Hitlers in world history is because God restrains evil human beings. And so we, we, stand by, we stand by believing the sovereign God's directing all things. When we look around today, what we see is not chaos. Here the angels are restraining God's judgment um, uh, from beginning at the command of the voice of the, loud, of the loudest angel. And it gives an express reason why the wait. Because the servants of God need to be sealed. So what is this sealing that will help us stand? Again, the Old Testament helps us. Ezekiel describes the destruction of Jerusalem. And in chapter 9, as Jerusalem is falling, the story is told in terms of the angels bringing about that destruction. Um, and, and, and one angel is sent at the beginning by the Lord to go through the city, and it says, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. In other words, mark out the true believers who are grieved at the idolatry uh, that they see in Jerusalem uh, because they belong to the Lord. They're his remnant. And this mark in that chapter is given so that when the angels that are coming bring their judgment, they will not be swept up in that judgment. Of course, more familiarly in Exodus, uh, we know that when the death angel came to pass over Egypt and bring the death of the firstborn to every family in Egypt, that the Lord distinguished the people of Israel by putting a mark on the doorpost of their house So when the death angel brought that judgment, they were spared by the blood of the Passover lamb. So in both cases, a sign or a seal protects God's people as God is judging sinners. And so you ask, well, what is the seal? Now, we've already seen seals in chapter 6, right? They're given, they're placed on that scroll. And the scroll is God's scroll. God owns it, and he puts the seals on it to show his ownership of it. Remember, that scroll could not be opened by any unworthy person, but only by the Lamb. And so the seal placed upon the the servants of God communicates God's ownership and God's protection. These servants belong to God. They bear his name. He'll protect them. Psalm 100 declares, Know that the Lord is God. He is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture, whom He cares for. When we get over to Revelation 14, we have the 140,000 that speaks of the seal. And it says that they've been sealed with the name of Christ and of God. 
God seals His people with His name to say that He owns us, to say that He protects us. He identifies us with Himself. Now the question comes, were God's people in Ezekiel's day marked with a literal physical mark on their forehead to protect them from judgment? Did the angels need a literal physical mark to see that? I'd say probably not. The mark's probably simply a spiritual one. The angels would see that. They're the only ones that need to. It's those who belong to God from the heart who have the seal. So to be sealed by God is to belong to Him, to have His name, to live as His servant. As Kester Marker writes, the invisible mark on their foreheads becomes visible in the words and deeds of these devoted followers of Jesus as they walk in His footsteps. So how does God seal us? Well, the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and who has anointed us, and who has also put a seal on us, and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So God seals us with His Holy Spirit. And yes, His Holy Spirit is invisible to the watching world. Uh, But nonetheless, it's real. And the sealing will take place throughout history, throughout the time period between Christ's ascension and His return, as people come to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. And friends, it's that seal that enables us and gives us the strength to stand because it marks us out. We belong to God. We are His and we have that certainty. Now verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Okay, the logical question always is, who are the 144,000? Uh, putting the, um, the Jehovah's Witnesses aside, forget them, they're wrong about everything. Um, uh, but, but one view that's common in the church today is that this represents a Jewish remnant who become believers during an intense seven-year tribulation period prior to Christ's return in order to give them protection then. In this view that they have, it says they, they believe that the Gentile church, they say, has been raptured from the earth and goes to heaven and escapes the tribulation. And uh, I would point out, would not be sealed in that case. Now, those who hold to this view claim the church is not mentioned after Revelation 3, and so the church must have been raptured at that point. Now, let me just point out a couple observations. Uh, first, have you seen any suggestion yet in the book of Revelation that the church has been raptured? I don't think so. Um, there's nothing there to indicate that. Um, and as to not seeing the word church after Revelation 3, quite frankly, um, in the New Testament, the terms church and Israel are used interchangeably by Paul and others. Just one example, Galatians 6.16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. God's not talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about the people of God, Jew and Gentile. And he calls them all Israel. So why does this list then, a good logical question, call itself the 12 tribes of Israel? Well, let's look at the list. It's different 
from all the other lists of the 12 tribes of Israel that you have in Scripture. It's different. What are the differences? Well, when the 12 tribes are usually listed, like in Jacob's listing in, in Genesis 35, they're, they're in birth order. First, Leah's sons, birth order by the, then, then Rachel's sons, then Bilhah's, and then Zilpah's. Uh, by birth order and then within who the primary wives are. But here in Revelation, three things initially will stand out about the list that's different. First, Judah comes first. Why does Judah come first? Probably because in chapter 6, Jesus is introduced as the line of Judah. And he has promise in the church. So Judah moves up to number one. Second, Dan is missing from this list. Now, Dan received notoriety because they were very idolatrous people, to be sure. And so Joseph is included, but also Manasseh replacing Dan. So it's not a list of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a list of the 11 tribes of Israel, if you look at it from that direction. Uh, And then notice who moves up in the list. The sons of Bilhah... And Zilpah move up the list. No other way, nowhere else do they do that. To suggest perhaps the inclusion of the, of the Gentiles into the people of God. So this list is done in a new way. Pointing to a new people of God, the church. Not the old people of God. Not the nation of Israel. It's the new people of God that are sealed. Who are all believers in Jesus. Both Jews and Gentiles. All right, why 144,000? We've already established numbers are symbolic in Revelation. Now, school starts again in a few weeks, so an early question for math students, what are the multiplication factors of the number 144,000? And the answer is what? 12 times 12 times 1,000. All right, that's good. Uh, Now, we've already seen two groups of 12 listed before for the 24 elders Um, We've seen that could also be the 12 patriarchs with the 12 apostles added together. Here they're multiplied, to give 144, multiplied again by 1,000. Now, the number 1,000 is used throughout the Bible to describe a great number. We don't necessarily think of of 1,000 maybe being a lot, but in the Bible it was. And so with 12 being a complete number multiplied out and your 1,000... I think of it this way. Moses speaks of Israel's a thousand times blessing promises from God. God keeps his promises, it says, to a thousand generations. Joshua says one Israelite can put to flight a thousand uh, soldiers. Jesus owns, or God owns the cattle on how many hills? A thousand hills. A thousand years like a single day in the sight of the Lord. God's covenant with Abraham is for a thousand generations, Psalm 105 says. We don't take those numbers thousand literally more than I say. You know, I've done that thousands of times. All right. Uh, when the psalmist says his covenant with Abraham is for a thousand years, he doesn't mean it comes to an end at year 1,001. All right. No, he's, he's indicated it goes on forever. So here, the number 144,000 in, in Revelation, it's not limiting God's people to that amount. Friends, that will become much clearer. Hold on until next week. You'll see that. What we do have here is a symbolic picture of the complete people of God. This is a complete number, all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, who will live during the time between the ascension and the second coming. And they're sealed by the Holy Spirit, they're preserved by God because they bear His name. 
And yes, we will face trials and tribulations, but we will be kept by God through it, whether we live or we die, preserved by the power of the Holy Spirit by which God seals us. Now, what John is hearing here in this vision, and we'll talk more about that next week, is that on earth to the world, 144,000, that doesn't seem like a very great number to the world. Indeed, 144,000 out of 7 billion people, that's not a lot. But that's how the world sees the church today. The world sees us as a small group of insignificant people. But the church is a people sealed, a people secure in belonging to God. And yes, we will face difficulty. And yes, some will die. So where does all this take place? We've been observing the throne room of heaven. That's where the discussion takes place. But the activity here, the sealing here, takes place on earth. We are the people of God. We are the soldiers of Christ in this world. We've been sealed by God so that we can keep standing. When? Well, yesterday and today and until Jesus comes. So what about us? Uh, We stand by knowing God, the sovereign God over all history, seals us with His Holy Spirit, and He has preserved, is preserving, and will preserve us spiritually in the midst of all the trials and tribulations in this present evil age. This is a promise we're assured of today. God knows His people. As one writer puts it, when we look out upon the mass of humanity of the world today, we find it impossible. We cannot distinguish between those who belong to Christ and those who do not. After all, it's not like those who have the faith bear a a physical sign of any kind. But God knows. He knows because He's given us His name. And He's marked us with His Spirit. And knowing God's sovereignty means we stand by not being surprised by life's trials and tribulations, but always remembering that He will preserve us through them. As Peter writes, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. We stand by maintaining an eternal perspective in this world. See, that's where we have hope. The world does not. And that's why the world acts like people don't have any hope. You hear it at the desperation in their voices and read it in their tweets. As God's people, we see beyond this world to the new heavens and the new earth to come. Friends, we can see further than the web telescope. All right? The world cannot. We can know all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And again, Peter, so we rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings, then we also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So friends, because the Holy Spirit seals us and dwells in us, we stand by walking in the Spirit's power, seeking day by day to defeat sin and to walk guided by His Word. And as we walk, we do carry out the unfinished task. We take the gospel to the nations. We share the hope we have with those who desperately 
need to know about Jesus Christ or else they face eternity in hell. We need the Holy Spirit to lead us as Christian soldiers to lift high the name of Jesus to the nations. Because, friends, the day of the Lord is near. And only those who trust in God will stand. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you that you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit. You have said we are yours. We belong to you. We're your sheep, Father. You're the good shepherd. So, Father, we thank you for your care for us, your provision for us through storms and trials and difficulties and challenges. Father, we don't know if if Christ tarries in his return, which of us will continue to physically live. Father, we're believers. We know we're yours forever. So we thank you for that. So, Father, assure us of that. If anybody here today without that assurance of a relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ, they've not sought righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Lord, today, show them your Son's love and draw them to that love, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.